We are in a series that we've entitled Living in the Light, a study out of 1 John. And uh, uh, we've been looking about uh, around about this letter that tells us that we can have assurance in our faith when it comes to Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves in chapter 2 of this series. Uh, and today we're going to look at the first of three tests that John is going to give his readers, including us today. Three tests that should give us assurance, if we pass the test, of course, that we are in the light. And the first test is going to be uh, on the subject of uh, who we are. And, and does our walk match the talk that we, sh- we share with those around us? Do we have fellowship? It's not something we just say, but is our fellowship manifested in the things that we do in our lives? Well, let's look to the scripture this morning, get right into our text. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, I'd ask that you would stand as I start in verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is what John, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to us today. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if, anybody, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Father God, we again come before You and we ask Your blessing on Your Word this morning. That we would know that we have come to know You. And that reality would be made manifest not in our words to one another, but in the deeds that we live out. Father, it's very important that we recognize that you say throughout your word that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not of ourselves. But Lord, we also recognize that a saving faith is a faith that is made manifest through the righteous things that we do. And so Father, we once again affirm that we can do nothing to save our souls from sin. But we know that a life that has changed will live differently. You tell us today in your word that if we claim to be in fellowship with you, claim to know you, that we'll obey your commands. Father, we need your strength to obey your commands. There's nothing in the natural man that will move us in any way uh, to follow your ways, to pursue your righteousness. So Lord, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would Uh, change our thinking, that you would strengthen us, that each day that we walk on this earth, that we'll be able to do all things to the glory of God through an obedient life. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but today is Valentine's Day. Some of you are now uh, having the fear of God go through your bodies. You have forgotten Uh, This day is Valentine's Day, the ancient celebration of love that found its beginning in A.D. 496. 
It was a celebration that was to commemorate the life of, uh, they're not sure if it was one martyr or many martyrs uh, with the name Valentine. Saint Valentine was the one that this commemorated, one who died uh, for their faith. And while this celebration has been going on for many years, Valentine's Day as we know it, the giving of cards and candies and, and flowers Uh, started in 1847 in Massachusetts. A woman was wanting to uh, increase sales at a local country store, and she thought it would be kind of nice to put together some novelty gifts uh, on this day of St. Valentine's. And as a result of that, through the working of American Greeters uh, card and Hallmark, uh, this has become one of the most expensive holidays that is celebrated. In fact, Valentine's Day, more people spend, uh, people spend more money on Valentine's Day than every other holiday except for Christmas. I'm not helping with that, just want you to know that. Amanda's not a big holiday person when it comes to things. She doesn't like Valentine's gifts, she likes random Tuesday gifts. And those are even harder to remember. Just another quick note, uh, men spend two and a half times the amount of money more than women do on Valentine's Day. I said, Amanda, why, why should men have to spend more than that? What, what are the women doing? She says, receiving that 2.5% more than what you're doing. You know, Valentine's Day is a, is a uh, kind of bittersweet memory for me. Uh, my, my first crush, I told Amanda I'm going to talk about a, an old flame in the pulpit, and she got a little nervous. And, and my first crush happened in the fifth grade. I won't say her name because uh, with things like Facebook and all that, it'll come back to haunt me. But there was this young girl that, that sat ahead of me in class, and, and I always thought she, she was kind of giving me the goo-goo eyes. You know what I'm talking about, fifth grade, puppy love. And uh, it was Valentine's Day. And i got to tell you, I was excited about Valentine's Day. What was she going to put on my Valentine's Day card? And I remember getting the card, and it said the three greatest words I could ever remember. It said, love ya, Tim. And then it wasn't just that. The eye, the little dot at the eye, she made into a heart. I got to tell you, man, I don't remember any of that rest of the day and that that school day. I I tell you, it it was the greatest day a fifth grader could ever have. And I was so excited. I went home and told my mom and dad, I've got this new, uh, new little uh, love thing going on. And, uh, and my parents said, yeah, you're too young. For-. I said, hey, I'm, I'm mature for my age. Don't worry about that. And, uh, and I remember thinking, man, we're, we're together. This is this new boyfriend-girlfriend thing. And I had heard about this. And, and now I've got a girlfriend. And I was all excited. And I thought I would just talk with her the next day. And, you know, that's what boyfriends and girlfriends do. And uh, I, I told her I really appreciated her card. And she said, well, it's no problem, no problem. And I said, you know, your message really just meant a lot to me. And I'm just glad to find out we're boyfriend and girlfriend. And she said, boyfriend or girlfriend? She says, I'm not your girlfriend. And I said, but you put a heart and you said, love you, Tim, and a heart on top of the eye. She says, my mom told me to do that for everyone. <laughs> Only Laura cares. You guys laugh. I spent three years in therapy for that. And I learned something about Valentine's that day. 
Something that I think has some real spiritual merit. You, you can sit there and say, I don't know what spiritual merit you're going to pull out of that story. But, but there's some real spiritual merit because uh, as kids in Valentine's, uh, we would go and we would hand out cards and little heart candies that had messages on them. And those messages would say, love you, kiss me, hug me, um, you're the greatest, you're the sweetest, all these things. And you would receive them from the people that hated your guts. Why would they do it? Because it was Valentine's Day. I was in line uh, the other day in a grocery store and a man was getting some flowers and he's not saying to his, uh, I think it was a work guy, another guy working, and he was saying how much he, he's struggling with his wife and, and fighting and all that. And he says, but it's Valentine's Day, I've got to get her something. We many times at Valentine's Day uh, go through a profession of love that we really don't mean. We say things that really aren't in our hearts. We articulate feelings that we don't have. And that's what John is wanting to tell us today because in John's day and in the church today, there's a lot of people who are what I want to call Valentine's Day Christians. Oh, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I know Him. But they don't live for Him. It's oh, maybe a one day a week thing. Maybe every once in a while when it's important. Uh, you're able to articulate uh, the greatness of, of who God is in your relationship with Him, but really there's no relationship at all. I want to define this terminology, Valentine's Day Christian. I want you to fill in the blanks that I've got in the outline. A Valentine's Day Christian involves a person. It involves a person who announces to others... Dave, I'm going to have you pull that up there if, you're, if someone can uh, click that slide for me. Involves a person who announces to others of their relationship with Jesus Christ in word alone, but who does nothing to prove that love and affection. It involves a person who announces to others of their relationship with Jesus Christ in word alone, but does nothing to prove that love and affection. Now, careful examination shows a duty-based, hypocritical approach to their so-called relationship with God. This type of Christianity is not genuine, but false. And it dupes its adherents into believing a lie. This is someone who says they have a relationship with God. This is maybe some of you today. You say you know God. We're going to hear about a man that said he knew God. He announced it to all those in the church of John's day. But really there's nothing to prove besides the profession that they announce that they have a relationship. There's nothing to prove that they are who they say they are. So what is the comparison? I want to give you a second uh, definition. And that is what I'd like to call a genuine, everyday Christian. Now this involves a person who announces to others their relationship with Jesus Christ in both word and deed. Now the proof of this relationship is an ongoing delight to live just 
as Jesus did. This type of life is far from perfect, but is made complete by living for Christ every day. This type of Christianity is genuine and allows the believer to live in fellowship with God and the truth of Scripture. And so we've got two types of people. We've got one who, when duty calls, uh, they say, I have a relationship with God. When it is convenient, I have a relationship with God. And that's the Valentine's Day Christian. The one who is the genuine everyday Christian isn't maybe any better. They may sin just as much as the Valentine's Day Christian does. This isn't an issue of how much they sin, but it's an issue of do they delight in the things of God? Do they pursue the things of God so that the uh, testimony doesn't just come from their mouth, but it comes from their life as well? John separates these two individuals in verses 3 through 6 with three simple words that you'll find under that definition. And that is keeping His commands. Keeping His commands. That's the probably the most important three words that I will utter uh, today. This is the telltale sign that your profession is true. Now again, John is not speaking about perfection here. Nowhere in the text does he talk about that. In fact, last week we learned that uh, uh, the individual uh, who sins has an advocate. In fact, he says, but when we do sin, we've got one who goes on our behalf. We have one that we can go to and confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. John is not saying that a genuine, everyday Christian is one who is perfect, but he is one who keeps the commands of God. He obeys his commands. Now, John isn't saying that this is some rigid approach to the Mosaic law. In fact, the term his commands uh, is of importance here because it's not speaking about the law. It's speaking about the precepts and directives that are seen in Christ's life and his teaching. And so what John is saying, he's going to reiterate it later on. We need to obey his commands. And at the end of verse 6, he says that we will walk as Jesus did. We will live just like Jesus would. In essence, we would uh, be Christians that in every uh, part of our life, in every scenario of life that we live, uh, we would be wearing those bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus live? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus do in this time of temptation? This is what it's about, obeying and keeping His commands. But what are we to do with such commands? The NIV says to obey. Now, I usually uh, appreciate what the NIV has to say in regards to its translation, and I think obey is a good term there. But translations that use the word keep is much better. The Greek word there is terao. And terao speaks of someone who continually guards some treasure. He keeps it so that he can benefit from it. That's what the original Greek there meant, terao. And so what John is saying is that the real, genuine Christian is one who looks at God's commands as a treasure. Not as a list of do's and don'ts. Not as a drudgery. But as one who views the law of the Lord, as the psalmist says, as a beautiful thing. As a thing that will bring him great happiness and joy. 
This is what tells uh, the difference between one who is a true Christian and the other who is what I've called a Valentine's Day Christian. Do you love the commands of God? Do you keep them? Do you guard them as a treasure? One scripture says as the apple of your eye. That it's something that you look at with great fondness. It will then move you uh, to read His Word. If you love the Scriptures, if you love keeping the commands of God, you're going to be opening God's Word. There's going to be a desire to be a part of studying His Word, of pursuing uh, Christ's likeness. It's a treasure that we are to keep. We are to live it out. It is one who lives a life. This is what a genuine Christian is all about. Who continually looks to holiness and righteousness as a prize to reach for. When I wrote that down in my notes, I erased it a couple times. Because many times that's not the pursuit that I have in my life. And I said, well, I think I'm a genuine everyday Christian. But do I continually look to holiness and righteousness as a prize to reach for? I don't. That's where the duty-based religion comes out in me. Well, i got to read the Bible. I'm a preacher. I've got to pray. I'm an elder. I've got to show love. That's what a good leader does. And God says, you want to be a follower of mine? Don't just proclaim it out of a sense of duty, but delight in it. Now, why would we delight? Why would we obey God's commands? Because we know God knows us better than we know ourselves. We are like the uh, heaven, or we are like the the um, earthly child of a heavenly father who doesn't understand why we have to have things like curfews and why there have to be rules in our lives until we grow up and our parents of our own. i got to be honest with you, the older I get, my parents make more and more sense to me. They're starting, I'm starting to figure them out, why they said the things that they did, why they did the things that they did. I thought it was just to make me look dumb. But it wasn't. It was because they loved me, because they knew me better than I knew myself. And God's commands are words He shares as a heavenly Father to us that says, I know you better than you know yourself. So do these things. Live in this way. Walk in this way. Because in the end, not only will you reap a harvest of righteousness, but you'll have peace. You'll have joy. You'll find contentment. You'll be able to get through the trials of life. You'll be able to deal with troublesome people. And isn't that what life is all about? It's not pursuing the next high. It's not pursuing the next thing on your list. It's about pursuing Christ and His righteousness and holiness. That's what it means when He says, obey His commands. Our desire as believers should be to pursue that righteousness and holiness. But it's difficult to do. And because of its difficulty, we live in a world where Christians would be better defined in that first definition. You hold your assurance of your salvation. If someone was to ask you, uh, are you a believer? You would say, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But the basis of your assurance of your faith is based on a one-time profession of faith. So the question is, If you were put on trial as a Christian, 
what would that jury use as evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Just something you've said? Are there tangible things that that jury would be able to look at you and say, there's something different about you? They don't just talk about Jesus, but they live Jesus. Now what forces us to become Valentine's Day Christians, I would say it's a result of some bad theology. We tell unbelievers that they can be saved by just praying a prayer. Now please understand me, justification is a miraculous thing. It's a marvelous thing that can happen when a heart dedicates itself to a life of pursuing holiness and righteousness. It's a heart that confesses sin and gives itself over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yes, that can be done in a simple prayer. But what we need to be careful with, Village Bible Church, is that we don't give assurance that when someone prays the sinner's prayer, you're in. And we see that all throughout uh, Christian books and Christian teaching. Welcome to the family of God. You prayed the prayer, you're in. The Bible doesn't speak that way. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you pray a prayer that that is the assurance of your belief. But time in and time out, it articulates that it isn't the talk that we make, but it's the walk that we live that gives us assurance. Let's look at a couple passages of Scripture just to remind us. I know they're famous passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7 for a moment, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is is speaking to this very subject. In Matthew chapter 7, verses uh, 15 through 23. This is what Jesus says. Watch out for false prophets. What's a false prophet? A false prophet is one who says they're a prophet of God, but in fact are not. And so Jesus says, watch out for these. They're out there. There are people who talk a good game who don't live the life that I've commanded them to. Now notice what he says. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like you, he says, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Notice, they don't, he doesn't say by their message by their words, by their profession of faith. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and will be thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Now notice what he says. This is important. And this is in the context. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there's the profession, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Now this is duty-based uh, religion. Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons before many miracles? You say, Tim, how do you know it's duty-based religion there? Because they're fighting God and they're telling God their righteous things. They're not basing their understanding of salvation on grace. They're saying, look at what I've done. 
And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Apart from me, you evildoers. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter for a moment, back towards 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. If it was so important that we just pray this simple prayer and we've got the assurance then, based on our words, that we are believers, then why would Peter, why would Peter, Mr. Big Mouth himself, Mr. I've got great professions of faith. Remember Peter's great testimony of faith? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And some of them grumble, hey, you're, some say you're Elijah. Others, John the Baptist. But Peter stands up and with this great profession of faith, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a profession of faith. That's better than any profession of faith you and I could have come up with that at that time. Peter, why wouldn't he just say, I'm in? I got it right. I said the right things about God. Because he knows that Scripture identifies that it's not with our mouths that we get our assurance. But he says this in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's things to be done. Again, I want to reiterate, we are not saved by works. But a salvation that is based on grace through faith is a life that is lived out in good works. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works that any man could boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ To do what? Good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. American evangelicalism has taken Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 out of its context and not put Ephesians 2, 10 with it. That's the paragraph that we need to know and memorize. Because we say, I'm in. Yes, it is by grace through faith. But it involves a life that keeps God's commands. So what are we to do? What does this keeping God's commands look like? And what then does a profession of faith share with others? Well, first of all, and it's going to be my longest point this morning, so don't get nervous. It declares to others our life in the light. When we announce to someone or to people that we know God, we're declaring to the world our life in the light. Now, how do we know that we can be sure about our fellowship with God? That was the concern that the people had in John's day. They were nervous. They were concerned about uh, what does God's uh, knowing God look like? The Gnostics of that day said that knowing God was some private thing, some secret thing that only the elite could find. And so the people in in John's day understandably are saying, how can we know God? You saw Jesus... You talked with Jesus. You lived with Jesus. How did you know him? And John begins to articulate what it says. Notice what he says in the text. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. What he wants them to understand is that they do know him. But it's not through some intellectual knowledge. But we can say we know him because we've experienced him. 
Just as he said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I've seen, I've touched, I've heard. That which was made manifest to me, now I proclaim to you. He's saying, I've been a part of Jesus. I've seen all that Jesus has done. I've experienced his power, his resurrection. I've seen that his words weren't just there, but he lived the life. And that which he told me, now I testify to you. This idea involves proving, first of all, the reality of our profession. This idea of knowing and articulating it is proving the reality of our profession. This is one of the greatest things that we can take from God's text, or from this text today from John. John doesn't say, we hope to know him, we wish we knew him. He doesn't say we look forward to knowing him, but he says that we have come to know him. It says that it's already been done in the past. The moment that you dedicate your life to Jesus Christ and bow the knee and confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you of all unrighteousness. At that moment where Christ imputes his righteousness, we call it justification, that he imputes his righteousness on our behalf, we come to know him. We're able to experience him in a new way. We have passed from death to life. We have gone from being haters of God to his uh, children, to being heirs to the Father with Christ. Jeremiah saw this in his day. I just want you to write this passage down. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. Let me read it for us. Jeremiah 31 verses uh, 33 and 34 articulates this prophecy of a day when Christ would come that people would know God. This is what the text says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. How will we know them? He says, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. If you, if you are a child of God today, you know Jesus. You know Jesus. And John wants to assure you that you can know him. It doesn't mean you have to be a doctrinal scholar. It doesn't mean you have to have all the theology down. In fact, the word there, know him, is the word gnosko. Gnosko, it's in fact the word where the Gnostics got their name. Gnostics, gnosko. What it meant is knowledge. The Gnostics were in a pursuit of knowledge. And they thought that God could be added and subtracted and put together like a math problem. And they said, we can know God. And John says, you don't know God. You don't know nothing about him because God is not something that we add up and there's an equal sign at the end of the problem and there is God. But God is something that we are allowed through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, through the revelation of God's word and the person and work of Jesus Christ that we can experience him. It's not a math problem. It's an experience that will change us. This is what our profession needs to be about. As we articulate this idea, we can know that we have come to know him. Fanny Crosby put it this way, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
What she's writing there when she wrote those words of blessed assurance was the idea that, yes, I know Him. I know Him and I've been a part of who He is. Next thing is the the validity of our fellowship. After telling believers that they can know Him and have known Him, He brings up Exhibit A. And Exhibit A is the Valentine's Day Christian. The profession without evidence. John rightly tells us that we can't just speak about this knowledge, but we must have experienced it, and it should have changed us. That's the whole thing about the experience. You cannot say uh, that you're a believer because you had some warm and fuzzy feeling at some point during Tim's message or someone else's sermon or during a song, and that's your whole salvation. But that warm and fuzzy feeling, that experience that you have, has now led you to live as Christ did. That's what John is saying. But notice he says, that's not what everybody does. Because there are some people, notice what he says in verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This one, this man that he says, many commentators believe that there was a man actually in the church that John was writing to that he's calling out. And the, and the uh, text and the original text, the idea, I know him, isn't a man saying, I, I know God. But he's a man, probably some sort of teacher, leader within the church, saying, I know him. It's, it's, it's articulated with great excitement, with great power and intensity. I know him, and yet he does not do what God commands. He has a big game that he talks. i got to tell you something. I am when it comes to basketball, the first John 2-4 type of basketball player. I talk the whole game. And usually the ones that talk during the game are terrible. And I am. And I talk about all that I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm too busy talking that I never actually get to doing what I say I'm going to do. And then I may hit a shot and then it just gives me more ammunition to keep talking. Now that's okay on a basketball court except the guys that I play with don't like it. But for the Christian, it's deadly. Because you're not a believer. If your whole, ta- if your whole Christian life is, is made up of what you say, and it's not being fleshed out in obeying God's commands, then you're in trouble. Brother and sister uh, here in, in Village Bible Church, if that is your Christianity, it says you're a liar. And God's truth is not in you. Now, why would he share such harsh words? Why would he announce to those in his midst that were a part of this church that their Christianity is invalid? Because he says, this is what Jesus said. Where does he get this idea that we can't just talk a good game and not live it out? Turn for a moment to John. Where does he get this kind of teaching? Is John just going off on his own, on his own little bunny trail? Turn to John 14 for a moment. Where where did John get this stuff? He got it from the source. You say, Tim, this is not the kind of religion I've heard about. Well, let's just look at what Jesus said. What was Jesus' words? John 14. Notice what he says in verse 15. If you love me, he says, you will obey what I command. Go to verse 21. 
He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Verse 23. This is what he says. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. He says, hey, this isn't just from me, but they belong to the Father who sent me. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 10 for a moment. Verse, uh, verse, Verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. The whole idea of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves. But the Christian life is a life that is dedicated to obeying the commands of God. We are too many times as Christians talking the big game, but not living it out. And that's why uh, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors call Christianity a hypocrisy. Because they hear us pontificating, but they see no power. They see us talking a good game, but they don't see anything changing in our lives. A profession of our faith needs to be the springboard that then says, don't just look at my mouth, but look at my hands, look at my feet. Look at where my eyes are at. Look at what I'm focusing in on. Look at my life. That is what it's about. It's not about the life that just talks about Christianity, but lives it. Why would he get so mad at those who announce a good game, but don't live it? There are three reasons. I want you to write these down just somewhere. When we talk about Christ and knowing Christ, but don't live for him, we're a liar, first of all, because we presume upon God's grace and we dishonor the gospel. We presume upon God's grace and we dishonor the gospel. What do I mean by that? How many of you have kids in college right now? Raise your hand if you've got kids in college. I pray for you and your bank accounts. But more than that, I want to ask you a question. Parents with kids in college, you send your kid to school and they're to get an education, right? That's that's what you're supposed to do. You're spending big money to do that. And Junior goes off to college and he wants to be an engineer. And Junior comes back first semester and you get the report card. Now you've poured in, I don't know what college runs, I've heard upwards even to 30 some thousand dollars. So you you put $15,000 into this thing first semester. And Junior comes home and he's got all Fs. That's not a fun Christmas break. What are you doing? Well, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm getting used to it. And, and there's a lot of other activities and stuff. College is a lot of fun. There's a lot of cool parties to go to. And, you know, I met this girl or this guy. And, and, and we're just having a great time. And, okay. All right, give it one more semester. The kid comes back the second semester. Now you've 30 some thousand dollars in the hole. All Fs. Let me ask you, in wisdom, are you going to send Junior back to college for his sophomore year? Probably not. You're going to say something like, the gravy train's over. 
I'm not going to send you somewhere and have you do something that you say you're a college student, you tell everybody you're going to college classes, but at the end of the day, you've accomplished nothing that you're supposed to do. And you've trampled my hard-earned money under your feet as you go to all these things and do all those things contrary to that which you've been called to do as a college student. Now let's create eternity into this. Jesus Christ died on the cross. And you say, I've been saved. I've been forgiven. And people look at your life and they say, but what has that salvation done for you? How are you living that out? When we don't follow God's commands and yet talk a good game, as followers of Christ, we dishonor the gospel. We dishonor it. He did that so we could be freed from the sin and death in our lives. And when we continue to live with disregard for God's standards, we show that we don't appreciate or understand what Jesus did for us and we make a mockery of His sacrifice. Second, the person who continues to sin with disregard is deluding themselves about their salvation. When we continue to sin without regard, we're deluding ourselves about our salvation. John says we come to know Him. We have come to know Him. Something in the past that we know based on what's happening in the present. Your assurance of your salvation in the past should not be from the past, but it is something that happened in the past that has continuing implications to today. I am saved, and I know I'm saved, because the natural man has no desire to know the things of God. And I hunger for God's Word. I'm not perfect, but I love the Lord. I get up with a desire to love Him and to trust Him and to obey Him. Now I could go back and say it was when I bowed the knee as a little boy at my dad's, at the foot of my dad's bed. But that profession has had implications that it shows me that He who began a good work in me is faithful to see it to the day of completion. And I don't know what chapter I'm in in my life, but I do know that profession that was made as a little boy has had lasting things. And it has spanned time. It has spanned location. It has spanned my parents' faith because uh, early on it was all about my parents' faith. I did it because they were doing it. But now my parents are gone. They don't have control over me. I could do whatever I want. And yet I find myself, instead of pursuing all the things of this world, there's this thing in me that says, turn away from that stuff. Get away from it. And so we have to look in our lives, what is assuring us of our salvation? It, have we come to know Him? If we have, we have come to know Him through the things that we now see happening in our lives. Chuck Colson shares this story about Mickey Cohen who was an infamous gangster in the post-war era. One night, Cohen had attended an evangelistic meeting and seemed interested. Realizing what a dramatic impact his conversion would have on the world, many of the Christian leaders of that day began to visit him. After one long night session, he was urged to open the door and let Christ in based on Revelation 3.20. So Cohen responded. But as the months passed, people saw no change in his life of crime. When confronted, he responded that no one had told him that he would have to give up his work or even his friends to be a Christian. After all, weren't there Christian football players and Christian cowboys and Christian politicians? Why not have a Christian gangster? 
It was at that time that Cohen was told that real salvation involved repentance. And at that point, Cohen announced that he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. People make professions of belief for many different reasons. The promise of forgiveness, the appearance of respectability, the desire to please friends or their families, a desire to cover all the bases to get fire insurance. John says to us, if you want to know if you're a true follower of Christ, look at your life. Don't look at your friends, don't look at your neighbors, don't look at your spouse, look at your life. The third reason why John brings up such a painful statement like you are a liar and the truth is not in you is that when we continue in our sin, we move towards a hardened heart. We move ourselves towards a more hardened heart. We ignore the Word of God. What a terrible thing to be one who says we're a believer, who says that we follow God's Word and we, and we don't listen to it. We don't hear it. We don't live in response to it. Very simply, it would be like the individual who lives... I, I love uh, some of the, the blocks in Chicago that have the L trains right up next door uh, to the apartments. And I met an individual one time in the L going to a Cubs game and he told me where he lived. He says, I live right next to the L station. I said, how do you get any sleep? He says, I just started to ignore the train. He says, it went by, but I never heard it. My brother and sister-in-law live right next to a train. And I said, how do you do it? They said, hey, you get used to it. The problem with you, if you are professing to be a believer, are not living in the truth, is that you're ignoring what God's word says. And God's word's going by you and you don't even hear it. One iota. This is what it means. This is what John is trying to articulate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He called a profession of faith alone cheap grace. Bonhoeffer said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He says the only grace that saves is a costly grace. It is the gospel which we must seek again and again. The gift which we must be asking for at the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it's a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. We have to follow Christ. So then what does the profession of faith then do? When we announce to the world that we have faith, I want to move through the two points very quickly today. We've hit the body of it. And that is it develops a certain kind of love. When we keep God's commands, there's a result that takes place in a life of obedience. We don't just do it because he tells us to, but there's a great benefit that comes. Notice what he says in verse 5. But if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. What he's saying is, is there's some results. When you obey God, you are going to find yourself in a good place. Not just doing the list of things, but there are some things that are going to happen. What is going to happen? He says God's love is going to be made truly complete in us. Well, how does that seem? It's seen, first of all, in the intimacy that we enjoy. The intimacy that we enjoy. Every believer is loved by God their Father, but when we walk in obedience we experience a real and intimate fellowship. The greatest days that I have as a father is not watching my children just go through the drudgery of doing their chores and living life and being angry. I got to help my brother again. I got to do this. But like yesterday, Noah was helping his mom. 
And Noah was all excited. I don't know if it's a phase he's going through, but he wanted to help clean the bathroom. And he did a phenomenal job. And I saw my wife just sort of just smile. And, and it wasn't that he was cleaning the bathroom. It was desire to love. It was a desire to live out that life of love as a son because he wanted to help his mom. He was excited. He was excited to even do the dirty work. Yes, mom, I'll do it. And I'd look at Amanda and that was the best Valentine's Day she could have gotten. She loved it. We as parents need to understand that it's not when our children just do what we tell them to do, but do it because we know that our children are doing it because they love us. Because they know we're loved by, they're loved by us. And so there's intimacy. I tell you what, when we are following God and His Word, when we are abiding in Him, God says He will abide with us. There's a relationship. There's an ongoing love that is seen. Some of you don't experience the power or, or feel apart from God. In a lot of reasons, probably because you're not living for God. And so you're like the individual that's holding back a lie that you haven't told your mom and dad or you haven't told your spouse. And every time you see them, you don't want to be near them because you know you're holding something back from them. You're not being honest with them. That's a relationship with God that isn't abiding in Christ. Not only an intimacy that we enjoy, but a maturity that we experience. The word complete there, God's love is made complete is a word of growth and maturity. Something is being accomplished in us. As we keep our eyes on His commands, as we become more like Christ, we turn away from the sins of our youth and we pursue God. It allows us to have a mature view of God's love. One of the things I've learned in uh, the almost 15 years that I've known Amanda is that my love for her has matured. Anyone who's been married for some time knows that. Now, it may not have the, the, the sparks and, and all the butterflies that it did early on, but I'll tell you what, I will take the love that I have for my wife today over those dating fun times that I had in day one through a hundred. Because there's a maturity to our love. There's a depth to our love. And what God is saying is, that through His Word, is that if we follow His commands, there's going to be a depth to our love. And that depth is going to allow us in difficult times to be able to wade through difficult waters because we're mature. This is what Paul said just very quickly in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 18 and 19, he says the following. He says, I pray that you'll be rooted and established in love, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all fullness of God. So why? Why why would that be so important? So that you are able to do immeasurably, uh, we can see him do now immeasurably more than we could ever ask for or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. We don't think about that. That if we want to see the immeasurable things that God does for us, we need to be abiding with him. A lot of the reason why your prayers go unanswered is because you're not living for Him. You're asking selfishly and not according to His will. But if we live and understand the depths and heights and and grasp the greatness of God's love for us and that mature love, it is there that we experience the immeasurable things that God has for us. But what does that kind of life involve? It involves one final thing and that it demands a particular way of life. Look at 5b. 
If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. You need to underline that passage, that verse right there. This is how we know we are in him. You want to have assurance? This is how we know we are in him. What does verse 6 say? Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. What John is saying is two things. Your way of life. Your way of life must reflect your profession of faith. Your way of life must reflect your profession of faith. What that means, quite simply, is something I learned a long time ago. Your walk should match your talk. If it doesn't, you need to shut your mouth. Because you're giving false advertisements of what Christianity is all about. Our our mouths, yes, should be wide open, declaring to others that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ only if we are doing what he says. So what does John say? He says, hey, it's okay to claim something. It's okay to claim to live in him. But here is the important part of it, that whoever does do it must walk as Jesus does. Not only should our way of life show and reflect our profession of faith, but it also must reflect the person of our faith, Jesus Christ. We need to walk with Him. Now notice, this is a personal walk. You can't live it for someone else. Your kids can't live it through you as parents. It can't be handed to another. We must all choose at some time or another, if our profession is true, that we will walk as Jesus did. It's active. This isn't something that just happens once, but it's ongoing. You don't say to someone, I'm a believer. Well, how do you know you're a believer? Well, I walked with Jesus 20 years ago. That doesn't work. It's an ongoing relationship. You would say, Tim, uh, how do you know you're married? Well, Amanda and I said some vows a long time ago, and that's how I know we're married. That's not a marriage. That's a duty-based contract. It's personal. It's active. And it's going to be costly. If we want to be effective ambassadors, we must walk as our king did. That means, my friends, we must love as Jesus did. We must serve as he served. Teach as he taught. Proclaim the things that he proclaimed. Turn from temptation like he did in Matthew chapter 4. Love as God loved. Loving his neighbors as himself. Striving to seek and to save that which was lost. Enduring hardship like a good soldier. It means coming to seek, uh, to serve and not be served. It means laying down your life every day. It means taking up your cross. It means living each moment for the glory of God. That's what it means to live as Jesus did. Are you doing that? If someone was to look at your life, could they see if you were mute that you're a believer? Would they say that? Would they be able to see Jesus? Would they? Would they see Jesus in your life? If you could never utter a word, would they be able to see Jesus? If not, then take some inventory of your life. Are you saved? I don't want to give you a a non-assurance. This book is all about assurance, but assurance for a true and real belief. Are you saved? You say you have this relationship, but what assures you of it? If there are some inconsistencies, and we'll have them, we'll have inconsistencies in our life, we need to pray and ask for confess, confess them to God. It means we need to obey God in the little things. 
It means living every day for Him and committing ourselves to the grace of God in the sanctifying process. What makes you believe you have eternal life? John says, if we love Him, we will keep His commands. You say it's redundant. It is. He's going to keep hitting on it over and over and over again. The reason why is we don't get it. If we say we love Him, we'll obey His commands. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. And Lord, these aren't easy things to hear. They're not easy because we do contrary to them. We live opposite to what Your Word says. So Father, I pray for each person in this place. Lord, I pray that uh, each person here would take inventory. Uh, Lord, we're not perfect. You know that. That's why You came and died for us. But You have given us a call. And the call is to live lives of righteousness. Lord, it has been said that the best sermon is not one with words, but that of a changed life. Lord, I pray that those are the type of preachers that we would be. That as we go to our workplaces and our schools this week, we wouldn't have to announce that we're believers, but that people would see something different about us. They would say, why do they live that way? What keeps them from such things? And at that point, Father, that You would open our mouths and that we would not claim because we've got some elite knowledge of You, but that we would declare to those around us that we are sinners saved by grace. And because we were saved out of our wretched lives, out of gratitude now we live. And we do as You say because You're our Master, You're our King. Father, that's the Gospel. That's the Gospel message. You've done so much for us. All You've asked is that we would obey. As I prayed earlier this morning, Father, we need Your Spirit to do it. Without You, we can do nothing. We'll never be able to obey. We'll never be able to live the life You've called us to. So, Father, as we come before You, we see our need for the Holy Spirit to go on our behalf and to change the things in our lives. Lord, allow Him to do spiritual surgery in our lives so that we can do what You've called us to do. Because if we don't have You, we would fail. Thank You that we can know You. That we don't have to wonder, but we can know You. And because of that knowledge, we no longer have to work for it. But now we can rest in the knowledge that we do know You. And rest in a life that lives and obeys You. Lord, I think of the songs of a children's... The words of a children's song, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Lord, I pray that that would be our heart this morning. We give it to You, our trust and our obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.